Steve Clark, and welcome to Brooklyn's this evening. Um, thank you for being here. I'm in the dark, and uh, no change there then, really. Um, and thank you, as ever, for supporting the Trust. Firstly, I'm going to apologise that the Vimy didn't run this evening. Um, lots of reasons, the weather being one during the week, and as you expect, um, a few other things are going on in Ireland tonight, so it was just impossible to get it to run. But I hope you had a chance to look around the exhibition, the uh, first of fastest, which I have to say is brilliant, and uh, recommend it to as many friends as you can. Um, believe it or not, I booked this event over a year ago, and I actually booked the sun for tonight, which was remarkable <laughs> after this. And I was delighted that our guest speaker could be here um, with us this evening. Now, I know someone's going to correct me in the audience, but I've checked with Tim, so it must be right. Um, we believe the Vimy took off from Newfoundland at 1.45 Eastern Seaboard time, which by even by my bad maths is 6.15 in the evening, which means they will have been flying 45 minutes as we sit here this evening. Oh, God, I told you then. <laughs> I'm sticking with my script and saying we think they've travelled about 100 miles, okay? So, Cyril, you can correct me, okay? I won't read your script out in a minute, so. Um, but for me, every time I look out there and you see the Vimy and then you see Concord, and it's just 50 short years, you know, that separate them, which I just find remarkable. This is also a first for me because Cyril has decided to supply me with his CV so that I can read it out to you just to let you know what a great man he is. <laughs> our, speaker, our speaker tonight is a former RAF Hercules navigator, RAF tornado pilot and a Boeing 777 airline captain. His speciality is taking the demystifying process of flying from a non-technical business and leisure audiences. He's flown the Atlantic a few more times than me. The last count, it was 643 times. Today's talk is entitled An Aviator's View of the Alcock and Brown Transatlantic Crossing by the Vickers Vimy on the 14th and 15th of June 1919. He's going to talk to us about the preparation, examines the crossing as a keen aviator's eyes from what made this historic event so special. Get my breath back. Will you please welcome Cyril Mannion. Well, in what will be the first of many corrections this evening, can I correct Steve? <laughs> Two and a half hours ago, plus 100 years, is when Alcock and Brown took off from Leicester's Field in St. John's, and they landed 16 hours and 28 minutes later in Clifton in County Galway. There are many people who, who uh, get the timing different, and that will become obvious during, but I've standardized on GMT. Now, when they landed in Clifton, they were being helped out of the airplane, and they weren't expected to arrive in Clifton. So the locals said, who are you? And they said, we're all cock and brown, and yesterday we were in America. This slide here shows Neil Armstrong almost 50 years ago, landing in the, uh, on the moon. 
Neil Armstrong's first words were, one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Now, Neil Armstrong was interviewed after this event, and the reporters interviewing him were describing him as, a, as the hero that we all think he was. And he said, no, we're not the heroes. We did it with nearly a million people helping us. The real heroes were all Cock and Brown, who did the crossing of the Atlantic more or less on their own. So if Neil Armstrong was prepared to credit these people with being as good as, as that, I'm delighted to be able to tell you about them this evening. So let me tell you about John Alcock. He was known to all as Jack. He was born in Old Trafford in uh, 1892. And from about the age of 12, he showed a very keen interest in aeronautics, initially building hot air balloons from silk and uh, then later progressing to building model airplanes. And by the time he was 17, he got an apprenticeship in an engineering works run by uh, uh, man called Charles Fletcher. Now this was good fortune for John Alcock because Charles Fletcher had a keen interest in aviation. And after two years with Charles Fletcher, John Alcock, I will standardize on John, John Alcock moved to another uh, engineering works run by a man called Norman Crossland. And again he was fortunate here because Norman Crossland was one of the founder mem members of the Manchester Aero Club. And also he was uh, servicing engines that were being fitted to Avro airplanes. Now this particular engine was a, an Italian Viale engine and the man importing it was based here in Brooklyn. He was a Frenchman called Maurice Ducroc. And John Alcock was given the task of servicing one of these engines and delivering it down to Brooklyn to, and this is where he met uh, Maurice Ducroc. Um, Ducroc was immediately impressed with Alcock's knowledge of the Viale engine. So he offered him a job uh, working here with him, and Alcock accepted that. Better still for Alcock, Maurice Ducroc ran a flying school here, so within a few months, Alcock had persuaded him to teach him to fly. And by the age, he was tw by the age of 20, he was the recipient of the Aero Club Certificate number 368. So he was pretty early into aviation in, in, uh, in the UK. He then started instructing, and that's what he was doing until the, the outbreak of the war. But he was also participating in air races. This is, a, this is showing him with the Avro air, airplane, which had the Viali engine fitted. And he progressed on then to competing in the London to Manchester air race in 1914. With the outbreak of war, he joined the Royal Naval Air Service, and he was immediately given instructional duties at East Church. And he was doing that until 1916, when his thirst for some real wartime action led him to be, to be sent to uh, just, just off the coast of Turkey. And he did partake in attacking Constantinople. On the morning that he was shot down, he had shot down three other airplanes, but the airplane he was flying was a twin-engine airplane, and the propeller uh, on one of the propellers was damaged. So he ended up struggling and flying it for about 60 miles before eventually he ditched in the sea. Unfortunately, in the sea, in this airplane, started being shot at by, by Turks on the shore. 
So they started to swim ashore, and of course, as soon as they swam ashore, they were arrested. So that was the start of Alcock's time as a prisoner of war. And that's where he stayed until the armistice. Now let me tell you about Arthur Whitten Brown. Arthur Whitten Brown had American parents, and they were based in Glasgow, searching for a suitable site for a Westinghouse engineering factory. So he was born in Glasgow. They didn't find a suitable site in, in Glasgow, so his, par his parents moved down to Manchester. So he was brought up in Manchester. At the outbreak of war, he started working, I should say, with his father in the engineering works. But the, at the outbreaks of, of war, he uh, joined the Manchester Regiment. And within a few months, he was uh, sent out to the, uh, to the trenches in, in, in France. And he was appalled by the squalor of the trenches. So fairly early on, he applied for a transfer to the Royal Flying Corps, which he was given. And he was given uh, the role uh, as an observer in the Royal Flying Corps. Now again, he was shot down twice. The first time, he was fortunate enough to land the right side of the lines. The second time, unfortunately, he landed the wrong side, and he was captured, and, and initially kept as a prisoner of war in Germany, and then for 17 months in, in Switzerland. So he was repatriated at the end of 1917. Unfortunately, on the second shooting down, he had a bad injury to his leg. So forever after that, he limped and was in pain and carried a walking stick, or used a walking stick. After the war, like lots of people, he was looking for a job. And he was looking for a job as an engineer. And the, the prospects were not looking too good for an injured man competing with everybody else for work as, a, as, an, as an engineer. And he was thinking he might have to go to the, to the United States. But he came down here to Vickers, applying for a job as an engineer. And he was not getting on too well in the interview. He was being interviewed by a man called Max Muller. And towards the end of this interview, who should walk into the office but John Alcock. Now, John Alcock was only demobbed in the middle of March of 1919. And until that point, he couldn't even think of, well, he could think about it, but he couldn't be employed as a potential cross, uh, transatlantic flyer. But he came here to the Vic Vickers and persuaded them that he was the pilot they needed and that they should be using the Vimy to cross the Atlantic. At this point, it was still pretty much hush-hush. But during the interview that Brown was having with Muller, he explained that he had studied, as a prisoner of war, he studied how you might navigate an airplane over a long distance over the sea. So with that, the two men were introduced to each other. It was purely a chance meeting here. And they formed a, a, a bond straight away. Now let me bring you back to remind you just the state of aviation. It was only in December of 1903 that the first flight took place at Kitty Hawk in the hands of the Wright brothers. First flight was just lasted 12 seconds, and by the end of the day, they were flying for just short of a minute. Now, this man, Lord Northcliffe, was the proprietor of the Daily Mail. Now, he is extremely significant because he was exasperated that the British government didn't seem to realize the significance of the developing situation of aviation. The consequence of aviation developing would have, would have been bad, shall we say, for the United Kingdom's security. Because up to this point, the mighty Royal Navy was guarded the security of the United Kingdom. And the British government didn't show much interest in developing aviation. 
So it was uh, Northcliffe's idea to come up with a series of prizes. So here they are. The first one was fly from London to, to Manchester uh, at a, a 10,000 pound prize. The second one was to cross the channel and that was a 1,000 pound prize. And that was won by Louis Blériot in 1909. Now the third one is this one. And let me just point out to you, it was announced on the 1st of April of 1913. And generally everybody thought, what a cracking April Fool's joke that is. It just seems so ludicrous. And again, let me remind you about the state of aviation. This was uh, Blériot's airplane before takeoff from France. Uh, this is a, a, a copy of a, a replica of the airplane, just to show you how flimsy the machine was. And this was the landing in, uh, in just after Dover, so flimsy that it broke off the landing gear. Little engine on that airplane, little three cylinders, just had 25 horsepower. Now, as soon as the war started in August of 1914, the transatlantic and the other prizes were suspended. But immediately after the armistice, they were re reinstituted. And the important points from that big document are these here. The flight across the Atlantic had to be completed within 72 hours. It had to be done in one leg. And this one, if the aircraft stopped, any stop had to be on water. Now that's not as silly as it means, because there was one uh, Rolls-Royce engine flying boat. It had five Rolls-Royce engines, Eagle 8 engines, and it was to give this airplane a chance of competing that that condition was put in as well. So in the UK, in 19, again in, in November of 1918, look at the number that were involved in aviation, just over a third of a million. We had 22,500 airplanes in the Royal Air Force. 103 airships, and look at this, over 700 aerodromes. Now, the Vimy was uh, built in response to a specification that was done in the middle of 1917, and it first flew in the, the November of 1917. The idea was that it would be able to take off from England, fly to Berlin, drop bombs, and make its way back. By the end of the war, only three of them had been built and supplied to the Royal Air Force, so it never saw action. Now, the key to the success of the transatlantic Vimy was this engine, the Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engine. This is here, it's a V12, 60 degrees spread V12. Now, the first time I gave this talk, it's about five years ago now, I, I uh, said, as I had just read a book and studying it, that the, this, this engine was a copy of the Mercedes-Benz Grand Prix winning 1914 engine. Because this engine was in the Grand Prix car in Park Lane Mercedes-Benz showroom at the start of the war. And Mercedes-Benz put it down in the basement and nobody knew about it until the word came out in September of 1915 that this thing existed. And it was driven up to uh, Derby with suggestions that it could form the basis of, uh, of an aero engine. So when I was telling this story, this man's hand came up, he said, Rolls-Royce, do not copy any other people's engines. <laughs> so I said to him, uh, what's, what's your, your basis for this? He said, well, I worked for Rolls-Royce for 42 years. What Rolls-Royce did, he said, we, we, we stripped the engine down, we examined it, and we were inspired by the design of the water jackets. 
We were inspired by the valve technology, and there was a third item we were inspired by, but we did not copy it. <laughs> the Vimy, of course, was, was built here. The, the one that was used for the Atlantic crossing was number 13 on the production line, and John Alcock, in particular, had an obsession with 13 being his lucky, lucky number. So he picked number 13 off the production line. It was then modified. Uh, the bombing gear was taken out. Instead of the bomb ambulance department in the front, it was covered over and a fuel tank was put in there. The bombing gear was removed from the fuselage and uh, tanks were put in. And the rear gunner's position was just covered over again and replaced by a fuel tank. It flew twice in April of 1919 from here. And then th that went so well, it was just dismantled again and then packaged, uh, sorry, boxed and, and in crates and sent down to Southampton for the crossing to St. John's. I know some of you in this room have been to St. John or to Newfoundland before. Um, anybody who has will know it is the wettest place on the planet. In fact, it has the distinction of being the wettest part of Canada. It has an annual precipitation rate of over 1,200 inches. It also has pretty rough terrain. So the, the difficulty they all had was finding a piece of land long enough to allow a heavy laden airplane to take off. Now, Alcock and Brown were not the first to get to, to St. John's. The first to, to get there arrived at the end of March. There were the, uh, the Sopwith Atlantic. Uh, Hawker and Greaves were the, were the pilot and the navigator. And they were waiting from the end of March through April through towards the end of May, still hadn't found good enough weather to, to uh, attempt the Atlantic crossing. There were three other teams. We'll talk about those a little bit more. Now, the, the, the Alcock and Brown left uh, Southampton on, on the uh, 7th of May, and they got to, uh, to Newfoundland. I think it was the, thir the 13th, and then had to make their way up by train and ferry from Nova Scotia. Now, they were all accommodated, all these aviators were accommodated in a place called the Cochrane Hotel in St. John's. They were quite popular people, because St. John's is a pretty sleepy place. But when Alcock arrived, he has a certain reputation with women. So the women of, of uh, uh, St. John's certainly enjoyed uh, John Alcock's company, and he is, I won't say much more about that, but there are books that do comment on how popular he was for another time. In complete contrast was uh, Brown. Brown was a quiet and studious man, and he was engaged to a woman called Kathleen Kennedy, and his biggest ambition was just to get the Atlantic flight done, get home to Kathleen, and get married to her. That was, that was it. So whereas John Alcock was doing the town, so to speak, uh, uh, Brown was spending his time in the library in the evenings talking to local uh, mariners and learning as much as he possibly could about uh, astro-navigation. At that time, Newfoundland was a dry state. So this paper bag was a solution to John Alcock's need for a drop of alcohol. He went along to the doctor, Dr. Campbell, and got himself certified as an alcoholic. And the brown paper bag then, we would go along to the pharmacy, the brown paper bag would have a bottle of spirits put in it, and that solved that particular problem. So the airplane arrived on the 26th of May, 
ink crates, as I said, in St. John's. And then to get it up to a suitable airfield was quite a, a challenge because one of the, the crate carrying the fuselage was over 50 feet long. I mentioned earlier on the difficulty of finding an airfield was, was phenomenal. But the, the, uh, and they were driving, they had a hired car and then eventually they bought an old Buick. They were dri driving up to 60 miles away from St. John's looking for a suitable place. Now, anybody who told them they had a suitable flat airfield, they went to see it. But the problem with any piece of land that was of any use in, in St. John's at this time, of course, would have had crops in it. So the, the, the land, if it was offered for, for, not for sale, but for use, the, the local farmers were asking for $25,000. And as Brown says in his, his description of this, land sells in, in Newfoundland for 30 cents an acre. Luckily for uh, uh, Alcock and Brown, the, one of the other teams offered them the use of their little airstrip for the assembly of, of the Vimy. It would not have been long enough for a fully lo loaded Vimy to take off for the flight across the Atlantic. So that at least was the first problem solved. The next problem of finding an airfield turned out to be easier than they hoped. The, the man who had carried, who'd drawn the, 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 the freight uh, uh, crates carrying the Vimy uh, was a haulier and he said well I have a little piece of land it's only three miles outside uh, St. John's that I use for grazing my horses so he went to look uh, Alcock went to look and saw it and it was just still too short but after some negotiation they managed to get use of some fields either side of it and then they were able to get 30 workers and remove the walls and, the, and they blasted rocks and so on enough to get a flat piece of flat land. They needed 500 yards of land and they were able to, with the use of this one field plus some others, they were able, able, able to get the required distance. The other thing about this piece of strip was it was slightly uphill. But the prevailing wind in St. John's is from the southeast. So they intended to take off from this little, the highest piece of this little land in the southeast direction into the prevailing wind. Assembling the Vimy in Kitty Vidi was quite challenging. You see how rudimentary the, the, uh, the, the equipment was. There's the fully assembled airplane and it was ready for takeoff uh, for the first test flight on the, on the 9th of June. Let me just show you then the, the cockpit. The, that's the rudder bar. I, you mentioned, I mentioned earlier that the, the airplane was originally designed for a, a single pilot cockpit. Now, if you can see, that's the only bit of space that Brown had for his feet. This will give you a, another idea of, of uh, the, the, cock, the cockpit. And here, this is what man's legs. You see, across there, less than a third of the cockpit space was available for, for, uh, for Brown. Now, the big challenge at that time was na uh, na navigation over the, over the sea. The longest flight that had been done so far was in fact from just near Cannes there to the northern part of Tunisia. And you can see with the Mediterranean weather that wouldn't have been too difficult see seeing, seeing uh, navigationally. So go back to this, let me give you some basic lessons on navigation. By comparison with uh, um, marine navigation. The problem with air, air, airplanes, of course, is that if we point the airplane in that direction and the wind is coming from there, the airplane will actually travel over the ground 
along that path. We call that the track, and that's the heading. The bit in between the two is called the drift angle. So knowing the drift angle is the key to earlier navigation. But at this stage, a drift meter had only just been invented. That was patented in 1919. By the way, the Air Ministry were very helpful uh, to, to, to Brown in giving him every assistance they had, whatever, whatever the newest equipment that was available. And of course, with a compass, this is not the type, exact type of compass that they use, but this is a fluid-filled compass. And that's that, so by pointing the airplane in the heading, knowing the drift angle, problem solved. Now, I, I was here a couple of years ago, and in the, the, the Varsity part here, that was the final version of the drift site, and it works in exactly the same way as Brown's version. This one here, the side of the Varsity, that's the periscopic system. You look vertically downwards, and you just rotate that. Look, that's the eyesight, and you rotate that uh, little dial there. And by uh, parallel, there, there are parallel lines inside the eyesight, and you just track what's, what's uh, uh, passing by on the ground or the sea surface underneath the airplane. And by looking up here, then you can measure what the drift angle is. And so that's the final version. It's really primitive, but that, that, that's, that, that's what he was using. He also decided that the best, or the, the only way really, was uh, to, to get fixes was by using Astro. And they, they, this is the compass, uh, sorry, the, the sextant that he used. It is, in fact, a ship's sextant. But of course, again, the difference with an airplane is you could be above the horizon, or you will be above the horizon. So he had fixed to it this particular, it's called an Abzi, Abney uh, spirit level. So if he, if he couldn't exactly see the, the, the horizon clearly, he could at least ensure that the sextant was level using that basic uh, uh, spirit level system. Now, on the this is the 16th, uh, 16th of May, Americans uh, set off from the southern part of Newfoundland to fly across. Now, they, they weren't competing for the £10,000 Daily Mail Prize, but they wanted to be first across the Atlantic. Now, we've just been talking about navigation. The Americans got around this problem very easily. What they did was to use the might of the US Navy and position ships at 50-mile intervals <laughs> along this track. So they had four NC4 flying boats that set out from this point, and uh, one of them got to the destination. The other one landed on the water 200 miles short and water taxied to the Azores, and the others didn't get there. But they were, they, Americans, it's important to remember this, the Americans were first across the Atlantic, but they went via the Azores, then to Lisbon, and they arrived in Plymouth on the 31st of May. Now, the significance of this is this was a great spur to Hawker, in, in particular, to get airborne. And Hawker, uh, Hawks, Hawker and Greaves and uh, Morgan and Ray, you know, they, they had agreed that whichever them went first, they'd let the other know so they'd give the other a chance of competing. So uh, Morgan, uh, Hawk, Hawks set off on, on the, the um, 18th of May. That's his airplane. It has an, an Eagle engine, engine in it. Now, they nearly succeeded. They safely got airborne. Uh, interestingly, by, by the way, that landing gear system was uh, uh, intended to be dropped as soon as they were coasting out, which is what they did. And things were going fantastically well. They got within about 600 miles or so of the Irish coast when their engine started to overheat. 
So the problem that they had then, when they throttled back the engine, they would gently glide down. And as the, as the, 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 the engine cooled down a bit, they put power on again. Eventually, these poor poison became lower and lower. And they decided in the end they're not going to make it. So they then uh, started doing a big zigzag, looking to see if they could see a ship. And amazingly, they found a ship. Even more amazingly, the ship, uh, they, they did orbits of the ship, got the attention of the crew of the ship using a very pistol, and they landed or, or ditched on the water alongside. Now the swell was getting higher, and it took them nearly two and a bit hours to be rescued, but they were rescued. Of course, they didn't, th th this ship didn't have uh, a radio, so when they didn't arrive uh, on, the, on the Irish coast or uh, land in Ireland, the, the assumption was made that they had uh, died in the attempt. So within a few days, the king had sent out condolence letters, and generally, everybody, particularly in, in St. John's, was feeling very sad at the loss of these two people. But as this ship coasted in towards the north of Scotland, uh, it was able to semaphore to the, to the locals and say, we have the, the uh, Sopwith crew all hands saved, and there was instant celebration. So Hawker almost, almost succeeded. Uh, within two hours of, of Hawker getting airborne, Raynham and Morgan tried. Now, they had a smaller Rolls-Royce engine, a Falcon engine, and unfortunately, uh, although they got airborne, they weren't able to climb away. They hit the ground and, and crashed. Now, uh, the good news is that Raynham survived, and in fact, Morgan survived, but he had a, a bad, had injuries to his face. So he wasn't going to be navigating again. At this stage, Raynham intended to have the airplane replaced, and, or sorry, repaired, and once he get a, another volunteer navigator, the game would be on again, so to speak. The other contender was this huge airplane, Handley Page, which had four Eagle engines. So they're, they're fore and aft, they're a pusher and a puller each side. Now this was based nearly 60 miles from St. John's. And I, again, I'm amused by this one because the captain was a 52-year-old Admiral, Admiral Kerr. Now, Admiral Kerr, uh, uh, I won't say bad words about him, but he was a perfectionist. That's probably the nicest thing I can say about him. But he also offered Alcock and Brown the use of his strip, but only after they had got airborne. And, they had, and it was at a cost of paying half the rent of the strip. So to me, uh, anyway, I'm quite delighted that uh, Admiral Kerr and his team didn't, didn't actually succeed. Uh, they, they kept doing test flights, and there was always something wrong with it as far as Admiral Kerr was concerned. They had to get new radiators out from England, and you name it, they were going on for weeks and weeks testing, and still was ne never good enough for him. The airplane, the, the Vimy, was uh, uh, assembled, as I said, at Kiriviri, and uh, this is the kind of, I mentioned earlier on that uh, Alcock was very popular. So there were huge crowds of locals any time that he was running the engines. So he, being a bit of a practical joker as well, got his mechanic uh, to use his camera. And he said, when I rev the engines up, be ready to take a photograph. So he positioned the airplane quite nicely here and then put the, the power up on the engines. And the cameraman was there to take a photograph of all the girls' dresses uh, as they, as they uh, got up to her face. So, I, I like, he's a, he's a pretty, pretty good character man. Now, the airplane, as I said, did his first test flight on, on the Monday, the 9th of June, and the intention was to go as soon as possible. The, 
the first fight the 9th of June. Now, the problem was that the Monday the 9th was followed by three days of, of torrential rain and strong winds. So you can see here from the surface, it was just appalling. So the next flight they did was on the Thursday, and that worked really well. They had, well a, they had a problem with the radio and some other minor problem, but apart from that, it was looking good for Friday. So Friday the 13th was the intention of, of Alcock and Brown to depart. Unfortunately, on the Friday the 13th, they arrived and it was just horrendous wind. They also had a small problem when they decided to move the airplane, they discovered that the rubber, there's a rubber band suspension system on the Vimy, and one of those had broken, so it had to be repaired. So the decision was made to delay the flight till the following day. Now, this is the, the tank system inside the transatlantic Vimy. So you can see that they carried 870 gallons of petrol in six tanks, plus a 40-gallon barrel of oil, plus reserves of water. And you can see them along there. And the airplane was designed for a max takeoff weight of 12,500 pounds. Now, remind you, it's going to be taking off uh, on this newly uh, built, I suppose you call it, airstrip. Overweight, the actual overweight stage was this, a full thousand pounds over the design maximum. So they waited uh, on the day till about midday, and the wind was still far too strong. So by about midday on the Saturday the 14th, the decision was taken to move the airplane to the other end of the strip. So they're now going to be taking off a thousand pounds overweight, slightly uphill, and with a gusting, slight crosswind. But the, 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 the Muller didn't want them to go, but Alcock and Brown persuaded them that it was worth taking the opportunity, because although the wind was strong, it was helping them going uphill. So what did they carry as well as fuel? They, they, their personal fuel was coffee, Horlicks, sandwiches, and chocolate. And at the very last minute, uh, Dr. Campbell looked after his passenger, his, his patient, I should say, uh, John Alcock, and came along and gave them another brown paper bag to sustain Alcock during the crossing. As well as the two, two uh, crew, they had two uh, uh, Lucky Charms. This is, this is the one, it's Alcock's one, it's Lucky Jim. It's in, in the Manchester Museum. And uh, Brown had a little cat thing called Twinkle Toes, which he carried inside his, his, uh, his flying suit. They waited, as I said, till the middle of the day. Oh, yes, one other comment about that. this. These suits were fur-lined, heated suits uh, built for them or made for them especially by Burberry's. Now, the problem was they could either have the heated boots on or the heated gloves on or the heated, but they couldn't have all three on together. And the other thing was that it relied on a little uh, battery charging, a uh, generator charging system, which didn't work very well. The end result of it was this system didn't work after two hours. So they, they moved the airplane down to the uh, other end of the strip, and the decision was taken to, to get airborne. In the, so that's the actual time they left, okay? 16.12 GMT. Uh, it's two and a half hours uh, different, by the way. That was the time for uh, Newfoundland as opposed to the Eastern Standard Time. And 16 hours and 28 minutes later, they landed in, in Clifton. Again, why I admire John Alcock a lot in his piloting skills, 
This is the, the replica we've seen here. Uh, that's just seven degrees of bank, and this is it landing in, in Africa. And seven degrees is a very, very, not a very big amount to bank on. So for him to be taking off in this overweight airplane in those gusty conditions, most pilots will give their big thumbs up to him. Quite, quite a fantastic skill. The word went out immediately that they got airborne, and of course the big emphasis was on the heavy winds. Now, this little uh, generator here uh, was going to be powering or charging the battery for the suits and for the radio. Unfortunately, uh, that little prop came off for some reason. So, from the two hours out, there was no chance of them either using, hearing a radio or transmitting or receiving. They apparently could receive for a little while, but no chance of transmitting. Now, the first hour went quite well. You know, he's able to see the sea, check the drift, and so on. Then the, this area here that had a huge amount of fog. So no, no longer now can he use the, the, the drift site, because you need to be able to see the surface. But he was taking sunshots, and this sunshot was the joy, because the, the, they were getting a tailwind to start with. That was forecast. But by this stage, it was clear that the tailwind was continuing on much better than they expected. So they were making great progress. And then a layer of cloud above them made it impossible to get any more Astro shots. And again, this is one of the reasons I admire uh, both of them, really, was Alcock's ability to hold a steady heading and, and Brown's uh, ability to uh, calculate the, 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 not the drift, but the variation and ensure that an accurate, accurate track was being made. Then just after midnight, they got these two stars, uh, Vega and Polaris to the Pole Star. And that showed that they were, again, confirmed that they were making much better progress east, but they were slightly south of the track. Nothing wrong with that, because the navigator then knows what the wind is doing, and he's able to use what's called dead reckoning. That's called deduced reckoning. So you calculate, assuming the wind stays the same, and predict what is the next drift you're going to get, and get the heading to be flown accordingly by the pilot. Now, again, I'll show this picture again to remind you. This is the cramped space they had, and, and both of them talked about this afterwards. That was the biggest, the cold wasn't the bigger problem as the cramped space. And we think that these days, in a modern, very comfortable airline flight deck, we can't do much more than about eight hours flight time, 10 hours duty time, without having a third pilot on board. And here they were flying for 16 and a half hours uh, in this tiny space. Not alone that. But the Vimy didn't have a trim system. So poor old Alcock had to keep at least one hand on this wheel at all times. And Brown says that he never took his feet off the rudder or at least one hand off that, that uh, control wheel. Again, not alone that, but he, he had been supplied with a rubber band system to help him because once, this, once the tank started to empty from the back, the airplane was going to get more and more nose heavy. But unfortunately, in the rush, to get away from Newfoundland, uh, it was cut a bit too short. So this rubber band trim aid system just was of no use to, to Alcock. Now, this is the first of the myths I want to dispel. They got disorientated. disorientated. They ended up going to this wall of cloud. We're at about 4,000 4, feet at the time. Now, in, in those days, we didn't have artificial horizons. The first artificial horizon was not invented till 1924. 
So they needed to see the horizon. And that was one of the reasons that they flew on a moonlit night as well. But they ended up in cloud. And some reports say they stalled. Some day they spin. And Alcock himself mentioned spiral. Now, I'm absolutely certain that they didn't end up spinning down. They ended up in a spiral. Because Brown says normally the engines were, were uh, kept between 1650 RPM and 1700. And what he says is that when they were going down, the engines initially accelerated up to 2200 RPM. And he talks about the noise of the screaming engines. And Alcock was he, uh, throttled, them, throttled them back, and, and they spiraled down. And they talk about the, 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 the G, if they don't use the word G, but they talk about being pressed into their seats. Now, many of you here will know what I mean, but for those who don't, that's the horizon. When they came out of cloud at 500 feet, there were 90 degrees wings to the, to the sea, to the sea. Now, again, if they were in a spin, or if they were stalled, he wouldn't have been able to get the wings level and recover. But he did it, and it's great credit to Alcock that he was able to do that. But Alcock comments, comments about it extensively. And what he said was, we got so close to, this, to the waves, you could smell the salt. And, and when they had recovered, the compass said they were pointing back towards Newfoundland. So they had to do a, a U-turn and, and, uh, and head back towards uh, Galway and, and climb away from the sea again. But that's what it is. So it's, it's a disorientation because they had no horizon, and, and they spiraled down. And again, the only thing that they had to help them uh, but that, and I think it's, it's about as much use, you know, I won't say the expression, but not very much use at all. It's a spirit level type system to show a wings level, and that's a, a pitch system. And I ask you to compare that with, that's a 1969 Boeing 747, the stuff that we'd had by then, uh, you know, white above and black below, and that's typically current of modern, this is of a 777, but basically really easy. Compare that with what he was trying to do in cloud. Again, absolutely Fantastic flying. Brown's chart, uh, that's the pictures taken here. Uh, you can see there, it's, it's a roller strip system. He had a, 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 it was called a Baker navigating machine. And basically, the, the chart just roll, he rolled it along in this box system. And on top of that, then, he was able to lay a perspex cover, which had been pre-marked with pre-calculated uh, uh, astro uh, elevations. That's called sum, Sumner lines. And, and uh, so that's, that's how he did his astro. He wasn't you know, doing lots of calculations in the tiny confined space. It had been pre-done on the ground, and he just slipped in a different overlay of the perspex covering on this chart. The next thing that happened, uh, and this is the biggest myth of all, and I hope nobody will leave this room tonight with feeling, without feeling how strongly you feel about this one. It is universally stated and started as a result of a book written in 1955 by the author was Graham Wallace. And he talks about uh, Brown getting out of his seat and manfully getting along the wings and hacking away ice from the intakes of the engines. It is a complete myth. So what I'm going to do is, is, is talk about that for a moment. This, of course, is the airplane that's in, 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 in the Science Museum. That's the gauge he's talking about there. It's called a fuel flow gauge, and uh, it is about the size, a little bit bigger than a 50 pence piece. And what he was doing, this is critical because there's a header tank at the top here, 
And this was critical to keep this clear of ice. But of course, once they went into to sleet and snow, uh, this all got iced up because it's on the very front of, of, that, of that stanchion there. The gauge was fixed on one of the centre struts. The only way to reach it was by climbing out of the cockpit and kneeling on top of the fuselage while holding on to a strut for balance. This I did, and the unpleasant change from the comparative warmth of the cockpit to the biting icy cold outside was very unpleasant. The violent rush of displaced air, which tended to sweep me backward, was another discomfort. I had no difficulty, however, in, in reaching upward and rubbing the snow from the face of the cage. Until the storm ended, a repetition of this performance, at fairly frequent intervals, continued to be necessary. There was, however, scarcely any danger in kneeling on the fuselage, as long as all cock kept the machine level. I think it's the master of understatement. Now, I know he says kneel on the fuselage, but the, 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 the writer, Brendan Lynch, uh, has, I think, dissected that and said that it probably was a misstatement and what he almost certainly do, was doing was kneeling on the seat because that's only as easy to reach up from that from the uh, kneeling on the seat position. So let's assume that but it's certainly the idea that he went out and hacked ice off the engines is, is uh, a complete myth. I know it's a good story but it doesn't, it's not true. Uh, so things were getting better now. They got another sun shot again which, uh, which uh, as the sun came up confirmed that they had a brilliant night of tailwinds. So they're much further east than they, were, than they could dare hope for. He also worked out that uh, they're a bit north, although as a navigator, I can't work out because a position line is just a position line. But he deduced that the wind was probably pushing them further north. So he took the big decision to change the heading down to southeast at this point. And they're starting to relax a bit now because dawn's coming up and it's, and it's, it's looking like the, the, it's not going to go on too much longer. They then celebrated at eight o'clock by having breakfast. And just as he was putting the remaining sandwiches back in the little, little uh, compartment behind them, uh, yes, they'd also descended, by the way, at this stage, uh, down to just underneath the cloud, because they wanted to be below the cloud before they hit land. So he reckons they were about 500 feet. And again, I take a lot of that with a grain of salt, because they didn't have any updated uh, barometric pressure setting. So they're still basically, when he says about 500 feet, he doesn't say whether it's visually judged. He implies it's what the, the aneroid altimeter said. So it could be, take that with a bit of a grain of salt, below the cloud anyway, and then they were, they, they were heading uh, in the southeast direction. They just put the, the, the food away when uh, he got a, a nod on the shoulder from, from Alcock, being really excited and pointing ahead. And he could just, Brown could just see then an island and followed by a second island. So they knew that they were about to coast in. It turned these islands out, are just off uh, the coast of Connemara. Now this is the this is the area where they landed. I put this shot just to show you the the, uh, the rocks, a bit like Newfoundland, uh, but also boggy land. So they they saw this uh, Marconi station. It's a huge thing. Thing these are these are this is the generating station. And I think, yeah, you see how big it is, that's 600 feet long. So the, the, up until about three, four years ago or so, this was the only indication of where they landed. It's just this big rock thing like that, and a sign that says uh, that this is the landing site 500 meters away. Before the, he chose the landing site, he went in and flew around uh, Clifton a couple of times, and because of the time of the morning it was, there was nobody out. The story is that they were all at church. Were very church-going in those days, but we'll say 
Um, and this is the style of this, this area is where they landed. So you can see that from the air, it would have been very tempting. So Alcock made the decision to, to, to uh, land at this point, and he made the perfect approach. And Brown comments very favorably on the lovely, gentle touchdown. And the airplane went along for 50 meters or so before, as the weight came on the wheels more, it suddenly nosed over. And this, of course, was the result. They're very lucky to get away. The only injury they had was that uh, Brown's nose uh, hit the combing here. So he had a cut on his nose. And Alcock had braced himself on the rudder bar. And one story goes that the rudder bar was so bent, it was like a U-shape. But uh, he got away without uh, any problem. They then went into the, the uh, they were obviously taken out of the airplane. And again, Brown talks how difficult it was to walk on this boggy land from, from clump to clump. And this is the middle uh, manager's mess. And this is where they were given breakfast and where the, the first reporters interviewed them. And from here is where they sent out the news to the world that they had safely been first across the Atlantic. This is the telegraph they sent to, uh, to uh, the team in St. John's. They then made their way. This is a, a little track system that was used for carrying turf in to fuel the generators in the, in the uh, transmitting station. So this, is, this was needed to get out. I suspect that this is on, the, on that road that, that I showed you the initial photograph there, landing there. But they, they, they got out of the area by this, and they were taken by car to Galway and by a reporter. And then the word, as I said, was out. And the significance of this, it was, of course, a Daily Mail that had stimulated all of this, this race. But the Daily Mail at that stage didn't publish on a Sunday. So they didn't get the news out in London. It was this Sunday evening telegram that got the news out in London. And needless to say, everybody was delighted. Became worldwide news. That's the New York Herald. Just to show you Alcock and Brown are the toast of Britain after their non-stop flight across the Atlantic in a little over 16 hours. Captain Alcock called it a terrible journey with lots of fog, blighting visibility. Once he said he didn't know whether they were upside down or not. At times, to see the way, they had to descend to just 300 feet above the sea. Lieutenant Brown's first act on landing was to send a telegram to his fiancée, Kathleen Kennedy. They're soon to be married. She calls herself the happiest girl in London. That's uh, Jeremy Nix's reading, one of the reports on the paper. Now, they made their way then from Galway. They spent the night in Galway, then they made their way to Dublin. And they uh, took the ferry over from uh, Dunleary to Holyhead on the Tuesday, Tuesday early hours, Tuesday morning. And this is them arriving at Holyhead. That is the first mailbag. There was 197 uh, letters in that, the first airmail across the Atlantic. There were huge crowds waiting for them. This is a picture of the uh, inside Euston Station, outside Euston Station, and outside the Royal Era Club, where they had to go to registered and claimed claim the prize, because the, the, the race, as such, was supervised by the Royal Aero Club. So that was the Tuesday, Wednesday. And then on the Friday, they went to uh, the Savoy, where uh, Winston Churchill presented them with the, the check from the Daily Mail. And it was announced there that they're going to be knighted the following day at uh, Windsor Castle. When one considers all these factors, I really do not know which we should admire the most in our guests. Their audacity, 
their determination, their skill, their science, their Vickers Vimy aeroplane, their Rolls-Royce engines, or their good fortune. They are the victors. They are the real victors. They are the only victors. It is no disparagement to the brilliantly executed exploits of the US Navy if we say in surveying the Atlantic flight made by Orcock and Brown, this is it. Words of Winston Churchill. That's the check. And on the Saturday, they made their way. This is a photograph taken at Eton Station, where the Eton, Eton school boys escorted them to Windsor Castle, where they were both knighted. So what happened to them afterwards? Well, uh, Brown got married to Kathleen at the end of July. That's their wedding day. And then he headed out across the Atlantic in the Mauritania and, uh, for, for a lecture tour. On the Mauritania, he regularly gave talks uh, to, to explain about the, the, the flight and navigating the Atlantic. The highlight was, this is Carnegie Hall in New York, where the, at the end of September, they spoke to a packed house of just over 3,300 people. What did uh, Alcock do? He came back here to continue his, his, his flying uh, work with Vickers. He was test flying various airplanes, but at the same time, he was planning to set up a motor garage or a motor showroom in London. On the 15th, it is 15th of December, the refurbished Vimy was presented to the Science Museum in Kensington, where it still is to this day. On the Monday, uh, Alcock was about to fly a, an airplane from here to Paris because the new uh, Le Bourget air show was starting on the, Tuesday, on the Tuesday morning. So he got airborne from here in not very good weather in this airplane, the Vickers Viking. And he got across the channel okay because he was seen coasting in near Le Havre. We think that he was probably using the Seine as a navigation feature to fly along, along it to reach Paris. But unfortunately, about 20 kilometers north of Rouen, the cloud came down and merged with the hills. And he seems to have tried to get underneath it. But unfortunately, in doing so, his wing hit a tree. And the airplane crashed, unfortunately fracturing his skull. Now, he wasn't killed instantly. He survived for nearly two hours. He was rescued by a farmer and his friend. And they sent off for medical help. But unfortunately, by the time the medical help arrived, poor old John Alcock was dead. He is buried at the Southern Cemetery in Manchester. That's, that's his grave, and a little bit more. That's close up. I like that, erected by his mother. It's such a tragedy. He was 27, 27th birthday the month before. And I honestly say, because of John Alcock's exuberance and extroversion, we would all, I mean all of the UK, know an awful lot more about Alcock and Brown if he'd survived. But unfortunately, he didn't, and Brown uh, hated publicity, and Brown was adamant that he was not a hero. He said he would, they were just lucky to be able to give him the task and to get away with doing it. So the result, of course, was that none of us knew, or a lot of people in England, knew very little about Alcock and Brown. So what happened to, to uh, the airplane? 
Vickers are expecting great things about it. So this is a picture of the, of the, the Vimy commercial. It basically has seats for 10 people. And it, it uh, had pretty mixed success. They, they started off looking good because they sold hundreds of them to China. Unfortunately, one re report says three airplanes were delivered. Another report I, said, I read said 33. So either 33 is a typo or three. But not many of them were delivered to China. The Royal Air Force bought 50 of them, and they stayed in service for about eight to 10 years in the Royal Air Force. Some of them were modified as uh, stretcher carriers that could fit four stretcher carriers in there and a medical team. But that, that, that was the career of the, of the Vimy commercial. Brown himself was employed by Vickers Metropolitan and given the job of being general manager of an engineering factory in Swansea. And he did that all the time till his death. He died uh, in uh, October of 1948. And uh, he's buried there, in, or his, his, his ashes are there with his wife in Buckinghamshire. So that comes to that sad end of that story. So I told this story three years ago in Clifton. And let me tell you a bit, bit more lighthearted. This man, after I'd finished this point, he came up to me and says, would you like to see a bit of the Vimy? And I said, uh, what are you talking about? He says, we have a bit of the Vimy. So I said, I, I, tell me more. He says, we have a bit of the Vimy. I said, I'd love to see it. So can you be? He says, oh, no, we, we'll meet you in the hotel later on. So we went off to the hotel, and a half an hour later, this man came with a, uh, a hockey bag over his shoulder. And then in the, uh, in the bar of the, this hotel, the Clifton Hotel, the Station House Hotel, I should say, he pulled out this bit of the Vimy. So let me show you the bit of the Vimy. It is, in fact, uh, the, the landing gear front strut. And that's, you can see it close up, more close up there. And of course, when the airplane landed, all the local souvenir hunters plundered it. So there's lots of bits of the Vimy around, around Clifton. Uh, it, it, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was plundered for the first two, two days or so before they could form a guard to protect it. So what you see, what you see in, in, uh, in the Science Museum in London is a, an updated version because bits of, it, <laughs> bits of it are all over Clifton. So that's the bit of the Vimy. So there we are. I'd be delighted to take any questions if you, if you should feel. Like Ladies and gentlemen, Cyril Mannion. <laughs> Cyril, you caught me a bit by surprise there. I'll get my breath back now. <laughs> so, as uh, Cyril said, any questions? Um, there's always someone to go first to get out the right. We've got the two people, okay. Why did they start from Newfoundland? No, not. As far as we can gather, it, it, it was just, the question was, why did they start from Newfoundland? It seems to be it was the nearest, the shortest distance to get across the ocean. But what has amazed me, or the more I've read about it, is that clearly there was no research done into the landscape and the area and the weather around Newfoundland. Otherwise, nobody in their right mind would have chosen that particular place to start off from. Where did the uh, money come from? The money? To finance it. Uh, to finance it. I, I think there was the prospect of, of building a commercial airplane. Bear in mind that you know, the, 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 the euphoria at the end of, of, of at the armistice was such that everybody was, the Air Force was getting rid of airplanes and all, everybody was trying to see how we can make more money and, 
and, and start up a commercial aviation industry. So I think it was just a, an investment in hopefully being the lucky person to design a good passenger airplane. Was 4,000 feet the highest they got? Or? No, the highest they got uh, was the time they got into the icing. It was 11,000 feet was the highest they got. The, the request from Brown was to try and get above the clouds so you could get some astro. And uh, said the highest bit they got was 11,000 feet. But 11,000 feet uh, in, in, in the cold without a heated suits, it must have been quite miserable. Hi, Cyril. Um, yeah. How much fuel did they have left time-wise? Time they had wise? enough, they reckon, for another 10 hours flying. Wow. They had over a third of what they started off with left. Has the aircraft ever flown again after the 11th no, no, no. I think it was probably taken back from Ireland in bits and then rebuilt here and given to the Science Museum. A couple of questions, actually. Um, I'm a little intrigued how they didn't get disorientated more often. You had the... Um, the spin and the spin. Yeah, they, 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 from what I can gather, at times, Brown, by the way, Alcock wrote a very succinct report about it. There's almost no, not much information at all. So we've all had to rely on Brown's accounts. And he, would, he said that there were between layers of cloud quite a bit. And sometimes they were in cloud that could just barely see the wingtips. But I can only assume that with the fog, uh, with, sorry, with the, the moonlight, there was enough of a horizon there for them to keep orientated. It was only when they went into that cumulonimbus cloud that they got completely, completely upside down. When I was doing my initial flying training, I stupidly, like most young pilots, decided I'd fly through a couple of clouds, and, and um, I came out sort of upside down and <laughs> spinning a bit. And I, there was, you know, no, no way you could keep upright, you know, yeah. without an instrument. And just the other quick one, did they originally intend to land at Cliff, Clifton? No, the, the, the aiming point on their chart was Galway. All oh, right. Yeah, you. so again, I, I, I should give uh, credit to Brown that they coasted in about 20 miles north of the straight line from St. John's to Galway. So that still that is a pretty good performance uh, with the rudimentary equipment they had. Thank you, Cyril. I noticed that one of the other aircraft, the Sopwith, had one engine. This one had two. Could you fly the Orcock plane on one engine? And was it a matter of weight, um, petrol can, or, or fuel consumption? I don't even know what kind of fuel they used. It probably wasn't diesel. It was probably some kind of petrol. They used petrol supplied by Shell and oil supplied by Castrol. And again, on the petrol thing, the, the petrol that they brought over with the first, when, when they came over with the airplane, had uh, a, a, an additive in it. And when they opened up the, the, the uh, barrels in Newfoundland, it had gone into a thick, like, like wallpaper paste. So they had to borrow fuel for the test days, and then they had fresh fuel uh, flown out from, uh, sorry, shipped out from, from, from England. Uh, not a hope in hell with the weight, no. No, it, it, you know, I, I don't know what the Vimy would have been like to fly on one engine if it was very light, but no, no, I wouldn't even think about that. With 10 hours fuel left, um, well, they knew they obviously had some fuel left. Was Clifton just a case of, right, nice place to land, that'll do. No, the, there's, got there. there's speculation about that, as you can imagine. Uh, the two favorite theories are, A, he must have been absolutely exhausted. 16 and a half hours, yeah. holding on, keeping that continuous pull on, on the pole. But more likely, 
they did not know whether the Hanley Page had got airborne behind them. So they needed to land to claim the prize and, and be first there. So the first promising piece of land, I think that's, that's probably, of, of those two theories, that's my favorite one. Thank, thank you. I think you said that the Vimy left from Southampton. My understanding is that it left from London Docks and it was delayed in London Docks due to a strike. Alcock and Brown left from Southampton on the Mauritania, mm. but the Vimy went on a different boat. Well, I, I, that's the first time I've heard that. All I can say is the research I've done, I rely on, on the books I read. And from what I understand, it, it most definitely says Southampton. And they even talked about that it, it, uh, the way it was handled, it fell off the lorry. Oh, they, it fell off the lorry here, didn't it? Yeah. Well, I do have the name at home, and I'm happy to Brilliant. give it. Thank you. I would appreciate that. Yeah. The, certainly the book, the book that I've read said it came from Southampton. Just while I'm wondering, I'd just like to thank Julian Temple from the museum who instigated uh, getting Cyril here. So a very big thank you to Julian for doing that. It's related to the first one when you say he had 10 hours. So were they expecting around about a 26-hour flight? No, I, I think they, they weren't expecting to be so lucky to have such a good tailwind all the way there. Okay, one last one. It sounds a very complicated fueling system. How did they switch it? That's a very good question, and I've, I've tried to find an answer to that, and I'm not sure. They, there is one thing that referred to it that, that was a, a manual pump for Brown. And there was another book that I read that described the Vimy and said it was a centrifugal pump that pumped it from the, the fuselage tanks to the header tank above. And that's why the gauge on the front of that strut was so important, because that indicated the fuel flowing by gravity from the header tank above the cockpit to the engines. Does that help? That's the best information I could get. Thank you. This this wasn't the start of uh, lots of flights across the Atlantic, was it? So yeah. when was the next one? The next successful one. There were lots who tried it, apparently. But the next successful one was, of course, what everybody assumes was the first, Charles Lindbergh in 1927. Uh, he had a specially built airplane. And uh, he, he took 33 hours to fly from New York to Paris. And again, amazing performance by him. But because The Spirit of St. Louis was a film made uh, in, in, in the mid-50s, uh, that's why they got the publicity and you know, he, who, he who writes the history wins the war. Were there any other members of the team? Was it just all copied no, uh, the, the, uh, that's a really good question because I was speaking to Gabby today, who's, who's uh, was your grandfather went, went there? Um, the, yeah, there were a total of 13 uh, in, in Newfoundland, including the two uh, crew. So they had some from uh, they had various specialists from here, and I, I gather it was two from Rolls Royce as well. Well, each of the teams had a specialist from Rolls Royce for their for their engines. So thirteen, and anyway, to answer your question. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Cyril Mannion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, I think we're ready to go on the rack.